Hello, ladies and gents. It's uh, Dan from Adventure More UK. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Catch on the Flipside. Today's special guest is an adventurer, a writer, and also a speaker. It is Mr. Tim Milliken. How are you, my friend? Hello. Nice to be here, Dan. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, no problem, dude. Uh, it's It's been... I, I, first of all, I just want to say thanks to James. Uh, for people that don't know, James got us in touch. Um, a friend of mine who was on one of my last podcasts, so I appreciate him getting us in uh, together. Um, now, obviously, you've been doing a lot of things over there, obviously, the last few years. Uh, there's a few things I want to talk about. Um, rather, you know, There is the main sort of point in which I want to bring up, but that's kind of the main bulk of it. But first of all, I just want to talk about, I talk about this with a lot of my guests, is uh, like adventure. Was it kind of in your blood, like when you were a kid? Um, is it something you wanted to do or is it just came naturally? Um, it's a good question. I, it wasn't in my blood in a way that, you know, I came from any degree of sporting background. You know, I was relatively unfit when I was younger and the idea of cycling 10 miles would be out of the question. Um, but as I grew up and as I tried different things, especially in my 20s, like the element of freedom was a big thing for me and being in the outdoors and having that freedom. And then when I turned 26, I guess I went on my first ever proper trip, which was a backpacking trip to Australia. And I think that opened the doors to me to see what adventure could really be like. And in that trip, I did a lot of hitchhiking and, and cycle touring. And it sort of opened my eyes to what travel and what adventure could really be about. But previously to that, I had real no experience. I was more of a uh, you know, I used to work in television and I was more of a party scene than an adventurer. I'd spend all my money out and out in Camden and things like that. Oh, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, like, because it's interesting, like, to see how, like, because people obviously come from different backgrounds. People sort of fall into the adventure sort of scene and some people, it's, you know, it's just built into them from a young age. Um, and it, it and just for myself, like, it just seemed like that for me, I'm, I'm that kind of latter one where it seems like I've always been involved in you know ever since i could probably walk i was out in the woods i was out camping you know and and for me it was people know you know i joined the military at 16 uh did eight years in the military so eventually was and and sort of being outdoors was always a big thing for me and, and as i said sport sport was always a big thing um was it did you do any sport at school or would you kind no, of no i played football yeah, very yeah. badly um <laughs> that was yeah, yeah i guess i guess um you know when i was very young so when i was maybe 10 to maybe even younger 8 to 13 8 to 14 every summer my parents used to take our family on this trip to butte to this activity center called adventure international it's still there now it's like an old castle and so it normally does residential school trips for kids but we'd go as a family they'd open up in the summers for families and we'd go yeah. and at that young age i probably got the first taste of doing things like abseiling and canoeing and um, hiking and orienteering and coasteering and you know you do all these little taster activities and I think that little experience did stick in there like it did whilst I then went through my teenage and early adult life not really doing anything but when I turned into my mid-20s and that adventure life came into it I think those experiences did stick and I think that's probably where the seed ideally germinated from yeah 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 no I, I'm the same like I, I I went to these camps you do at school I went first in primary school exactly the same like we, we went away and did trips uh doing walking kayaking and all that sort of thing um and i, I absolutely loved it um that's i think again what got me into it i kind of remembered yeah. that from when i was a kid um now was obviously you say you, was there anything available to you as in in the sense of like like jobs or occupations like oh did you always want to kind of get into the outdoors or was there anything else you really wanted to do no i've had a very storied career history um yeah. when my degree was in film production i studied at lincoln so i always wanted to work in film and that was my primary uh, motivation when i was younger i think just because i enjoyed watching films more than anything else um yeah. you know people like when we were growing up me and my friendship group we kind of got pushed towards university and we kind of had to go Hey, you got to go to university, it's the thing you do. So I was like, okay, well, I'll go and study film then. It's almost like a minor act of rebellion. I don't want to study anything real. I'll go study film. Um, so, you know, I worked in the film industry for five years after university. And um, I was very lucky and I worked on some amazing productions. But it wasn't until 
I got bored of that and quite got I found that career industry quite stale that I stopped and that's when I went on to Australia and that's when the the world of the outdoors really opened up for me and it was all sort of self-made trips in the early days um, including the big round the world bike rides and then that after the bike ride that's what really changed things for me so I'd had this moment of realization that that's what I want to do and that's the industry that I'm really passionate and I really care about so following that I now I'm very lucky enough to get paid to work in the outdoors mainly guiding bicycle trips or or bushcraft trips or survival trips and things like that but um, I guess you go through many career changes in life and now I'm in the one that I think fits me the best right now yeah yeah no absolutely I, I completely agree because I'm the same like I, I you yeah. know I, I like as I said I mentioned being in the military and then left the military and became a telecoms engineer um, that was my background so everything mm -hmm. to do with you know going to people's houses and fitting phone lines that was that was my bread and butter but I soon got bored of it I really got bored of it and I, I wanted to go back to that being outside and I love walking and stuff and hiking um, and I thought well what can I do so that's when for me I did as we found out previously to this like we both worked for the same company and as you say we both taught uh, bushcraft uh, so that's that's that my that was my first insight to the outdoor sort of industry working uh, for mm -hmm. bushcraft, and absolutely loved it. I love and, uh, yeah, and me too. for people that know, yeah, I, it was amazing. And for people that know me quite well, like my best friends, my close friends, and my family, a lot of them were probably thinking, like for me, because when I left the military, I had a lot of, I wouldn't say issues, but I had the same problems as a lot of mil ex-military people do or mm -hmm. veterans do with PTSD and depression and drinking and stuff like that so when when i said to them that i want to do a career in the outdoors and work with children people thought i was crazy like people thought i was mad they're <laughs> like how can you as a person who's come from that back come from that background go and work with children and do you know what i've been doing it you know close to nine ten years now and yeah, I, I absolutely love it it's the best thing in the world best job in the world i think i know I've, everyone will say their industry is the best or their job is the best but I can't think of anything better than, and it sounds cliche, but teaching a future generation about whatever it may be, you know, especially things about the outdoors and being active and stuff like that. And I, I think that's a great thing. Um, yeah, it's so important as well these days, you know, because now more than ever with COVID, but previously to that, you know, you're taking kids out from inner city London who have never seen a woodland before and they're asking permission if they can go and run. And you're like, this is a safe environment. You're safe. We've fenced off. There's first aid people here. Go and be a kid. It's really important. And now they get that through these kinds of um, works that we do. I think it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 obviously, as we as we said we said before we came on, is you know we're a similar age, and I think we're from a generation where we didn't have to ask about that. We kind of just mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you, but when I left, came home from school. I did my homework, had my tea, and then I go out and play in the garden or play. I had a, there's like a woodlands in the back of my house. Mm -hmm. I go and play in there until the street lights came on, and then I come home, I come in. Yeah. And and that's that's how I was brought up. Um, and I think it's very different nowadays. And as as we both, as I've said, we're both working as you know in the same industry. And I feel like children aren't allowed to be children anymore. There's too many restrictions i think no matter where they come from fear. Mm, yeah there is there is too much fear and i feel like i i don't want to say that we're bringing up a generation of uh softer children or softer you know a gen softer generation but it does kind of seem like that I, i've noticed that with kids that i've been uh you know teaching or like had groups over the years but at the same time I don't know if you notice this when you've got certain children from certain areas of the country for instance for me i could have uh children actually no because I'll, I'll go back to, to my last job before pre-covid i was working down uh, near bath uh, and we'd get kids from from london and you can tell they're from you know inner city uh kids but then you get kids from the cotswolds and stuff like that or kids that are from wales and they live living you know on farms and stuff like that and it seems like even though they might be the same age they're very different children do you ever do you ever notice stuff like that 
yes, you can you can really tell um, just their behaviour and almost their mindset sometimes. And it's it's a bit of a generalisation to say every kid from inner city London is is mm. never seen a woodland and they're you know they're scared of the big city. That's no, that's not true. But there there is a, a generalisation there. I think it's correct that you know you go see some groups of kids from some areas will be very very different than other schools. Likewise, if you work with a private school and you then you work with a public school, you can you can automatically see the difference in terms of their education and often their behaviour as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I, I again I can totally agree, absolutely agree. Um, first thing I want to uh, talk about uh, about your adventures is um, where you say you went to Australia. Um, was was that in a sort of personal capacity, as in was it a like a, basically a trip, you know, like a, what we call as a working holiday visa and traveling and stuff like that or was it more of a professional kind of uh, no that was a full-on um working holiday visa it was a yeah, yeah. time i was working for a tv studio in camden um it was amazing fun but it was also you know we're going out three or four nights a week partying and mm. after two years of that i'd kind of decided i didn't i needed a change and a break so i moved to australia on a very common kind of working holiday visa and then realized I didn't have any money and went to work in Australia, um, worked yep. on farms, worked on uh, courgette farms, chili farms, mango farms, still the farms, I think. <laughs> like, I just yeah, yeah. don't remember yeah, like yeah. the outdoors, I just work on farms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I've done, I've done exactly the same. I did it in my late, basically last chance salute before I turned 30. So I know exactly mm -hmm. what uh, you did. Uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about, you, obviously one one of the first things that you did was you obviously do a lot of bicycle touring uh, and you, you cycled from, was it Noosa to Brisbane? Was that, was it Noosa yes. to Brisbane? Yeah. Yeah. How That's was correct. That? Yeah. That was amazing. So, um, I'll start a story a little way before that. And before okay. I did the bicycle touring, I was on a bus in Australia and I was looking out the window of this bus and I was seeing all these villages go by and I'm like, what is that? What is that? And, I was really curious because all I was doing in Australia was generally going on the bus, going to the hostel, going to the bar, seeing the tourist thing and then doing it all over again. And I was just partying with Europeans and I was kind of felt like I was missing the real Australia. So on that bus, I was realised that what I was going to actually do is I'm going to cycle home from Australia. So I had my little notebook and I wrote, cycle home from Australia, possible rebirth, nine months, Australia to England. And I thought, yeah, that's a really good idea, Tim. Then... On that bus journey, not the exact one, but maybe in a month's time, um, my girlfriend flew out to see me, and then we were going to be in Australia together. And I pictured the idea that we were live when we we're living in Cairns, that we we're going to, which is in the top northeast, that we'll cycle to a music festival in Brisbane. And she's like, "No, we're not doing that. You're mad." <laughs> so I was like, I looked at like all the routes and the weathers, and she's like, "It's 40 degrees, Tim, and there's no shops anywhere." So I thought we could do it. She was a lot more hesitant. Um, bless her. I say bless her. She was. She still did a really amazing trip with me, but at the time she was a lot more hesitant because she'd never done it, and I'd never done it either. But I just probably had more stupid mindset, perhaps machismo, maybe. And so we settled that we'll do a smaller trip and a trial trip to see if we could cycle back from Australia. And that trip was from Noosa to Brisbane. And it was amazing because it was the first sense of complete bicycle freedom. Like we could go wherever we wanted and see anything we wanted and sleep anywhere we wanted. And we bought bikes for, I think we spent about a hundred quid on two bikes. And then we just got a milk crate and cable tied it to the back and then put our backpacks in it and then just started cycling. And the backpack would just fall off all the time. <laughs> it's just an awful <laughs> setup. Yeah. That's, but it uh... did give us the first taste of cycle touring, which was really fun. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely uh, experience. So after you'd done, was it six days you you'd cycled for, for for that? Yeah, it's about seven days. Yeah, maybe no, maybe yeah. it's longer. It was maybe ten days potentially. Okay, uh, so after you'd done that trip, did that kind of what what made you sort of uh, think about do, after that trip going and doing sort of cycling home? Or because obviously you know we you didn't end up doing it. Is there is a reason why, or is it just not? What you didn't think it, yeah, like, you know, it was for you? Yeah, whilst, whilst the trip was amazing and it was fun, it also brought home a lot of realities of two people living together. And it was only a short time. 
but we crashed a lot even on those you know six seven eight nine ten days we realized that actually when we were in this situation we didn't often get on that well <laughs> so yeah, yeah. the idea to cycle back was then shelved a we didn't really have the money because whilst we were both had both on working holiday visas we weren't really working we kind of were spending the money that we earned to travel around australia because we wanted to see the country we were in yeah. so we didn't really have the money to cycle back and also we just needed to recover maybe from that first trip and we decided to see australia by car and we did recover the relationship did recover and we were then able to fly home from australia but the idea didn't didn't leave us and then we got home the idea grew and that was to not only cycle from australia to england but cycle around the world from reading to reading reading in england to reading in america yeah yeah well that, yeah that's the uh, obviously your big trip that you did I, i'll talk i want to talk a little bit about that okay. in, yeah. in, in a little bit um but there's a one thing I, I read about you that you did a trip in was it in germany to uh, somewhere in germany to vienna austria yes that was was that like another trial run as, as you call that it? was exactly that that was a trial run yeah that was a more that was a, we'd learned a lot from the first trip so we'd learn how before we did the first ever trip the noosa to brisbane we didn't even know there was a thing called cycle touring we just wanted to see Australia by bike, using the bike as a method of seeing the country, interacting with the environment, and it's really cheap. Okay, so that's probably only yeah. one of the reasons. Yeah. Then when we got home and we'd done some research, we'd, we'd upped our game. We'd discovered that there are you know YouTube videos and helplines and blogs, and many, many, many people have done it before us. So we'd bought proper gear, panniers, we'd bought better bikes, um, we flew to Passau in, in Germany, which is near Munich, and then cycled to Vienna. And it was a lovely time because we had more money so we could eat lots of German sausages and drink lots of German beer. And when we got to Vienna, we could go see the opera. So it was more of a holiday style trip, but it still had that adventurous spirit to it. We still wild camped and we still brought far too much things than we needed. <laughs> we had like... Yeah. Probably like more spare clothes than you could ever need if you were going anywhere. But we thought yeah, yeah. we'd bring everything. Um, and that, that trip was really fun. Um, because I guess the it was just a bit easier and we'd have more experience. And the more experience you have, the more you can grow and develop your skill set to enjoy it more. I think that's often quite important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like you say, there's a saying I use a lot with children and I've used it in the military, which is poor prior preparation equals piss poor performance everyone knows that saying well a lot of people know that saying so i think being prepared for something like that um it, it, in the grand scheme of things compared to your big sort of uh touring cycle touring which we'll talk about in a minute is very small as in is it, again that was about 10 days or so the G germany to mm -hmm. austria trip um did you did you sort of take anything from both of these trips uh and realize how different or similar they could have would have been or was compared you know yeah i think australia and germany um we definitely grew from the from the australia trip so the australia trip was probably harder because we were just learning about everything all the time mm. we'd we'd you know it was the first time we'd been invited into people's houses and the first time we'd kind of been realized that cycling makes you really really hungry and like we developed our skill set to move forward into the into the European trip. And again, it was only 10 days. But by being in a better position um, f from the fundamentals, like we're probably a stronger team on the second trip because we weren't discovering each other's cycling momentum and, and hunger pains and just learning about this new world separately, but also together. Whereas when we did the European trip, we were probably a tighter unit. Not to say that we didn't have arguments, because sure we did. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. it was, we'd taken a lot of the lessons that we had learned and then reapplied it into Europe. And what's quite interesting is Europe is actually quite easy, whereas Australia, um, whilst they speak English, it's sometimes culturally very different. Whereas Europe yeah. is, in terms of it sees a lot more tourism. So you, you often, you don't get invited into places like you do in, in Australia. And you know, you've got more of a setup of campsites and restaurants and lovely bars by the by the um, by the big river there. I can't remember the name of the river. Oh, big is that the Danube? Um, 
The do, yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Danube, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big tourist industry, so like it's yeah. really yeah. it's set up for bikes with touring. You see maybe ten or fifteen or twenty people on a bike every day cycling up and down the the, the Mark cycle path, which is yeah, the yeah. Um, the Dono cycle path. Yeah. So did did you do a lot of training for that, or was it kind of just off the cuff? No, we did no real training for that, other than um, we did no real training for either trip. In fact. Um, yeah. Yeah. We should when we should have learned to do some training, but uh, yeah, you know yeah. the good thing about cycle touring is if you you can kind of set your di- daily distances on the road. So whilst both of those trips had an end date, so in in Brisbane we wanted to get to a music festival, and in Vienna we wanted to get to Vienna, see the city, and then fly home because we had a flight booked. So you yeah. can't you know you can't say oh, I'm going to stop here for three days because you have to get to the end point, but you can set your daily distances in a way that you know if you want to stop you can as long as you know if you look at the maps and go i've got 60 kilometers to do today oh maybe we'll do 40 today have an early day and then do 80 tomorrow that's okay and you can yeah. you can judge yeah. it on the flight so whilst you we didn't do any training um i feel that we were able to get fit as we rode and we were we fit enough to make the distance from the very beginning yeah yeah so um also that brings me on to is it in May 2015 is when you went on your around the world trip. Um, now, obviously, you must have learned quite a lot from both of them trips previous. Uh, did you do sort of smaller trips in between, like like maybe in the UK or or anything like that before you went on this trip? Yeah, there's two schools of thought, Dan. I think, and there's some people yeah. who are planners, and then there's yeah. some people who aren't planners. <laughs> Yeah. I'm definitely not a planner, right? Yeah. So I wish I could tell you we did loads of little trips around England. I wish I could tell you that I'd worn clippy shoes for the first time before I left. I wish I could tell you I'd, I rode a bike with all the luggage on before I left that first day, but we didn't. <laughs> we just piled it up and off we went, and it was bloody hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. So for people that don't know, um, do you want to? give people a brief sort of in, insight to what the actual trip was and then we can we'll talk about it a bit more in detail yeah i guess the the overview of that was a was a around the world cycle ride with me and my then partner fanola from Reading, england, england to Reading in pennsylvania so yeah. Reading to Reading. why because i thought it was funny basically i thought yeah. like i'll go to the other Reading. all right nice one um it was a journey of 46,500 kilometers across 39 countries on about six pound a day in terms of the budget and bikes that we'd bought. Both of us had spent about, mine was 90 pounds, I think hers was 120. So minimal outlay to the beginning. So it's all about the actual adventure, but that was the, that was the trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on sort of a, as an overview, people could probably not compute that in their heads. That That's... <laughs> For, for, like you say for someone who doesn't plan anything like they, they, that that's uh quite a quite a big well it's not quite a big it's a very big sort of event um what, what so for the beginning part of it so when you set off from reading which kind of way did you go and how did you get there so going going east so um you know when we say we didn't do any planning i did do a bit of planning i bought a large map and i yeah. drew a line from Reading all the way around the world <laughs> that was the level of planning <laughs> that we did <laughs> so um what i so we went east and so from Reading across into london and then down to down to france dover to france and then yeah. across europe um france belgium holland germany and then into czech republic slovakia hungary romania bulgaria and then into turkey so that's kind of our route across Europe and that changed on the fly because originally we wanted to go down through um, Austria and Croatia and Montenegro but by the time we'd got to Germany we we're realizing we were spending far too much money <laughs> because we didn't really yeah. have a lot of money so hence the, well, the bikes are really cheap and how we were living quite frugally but within our means you can cycle as long as you eat you can travel yeah, um, yeah. But so we changed it in Germany to go into the Czech Republic because it was a bit cheaper, and Slovakia and Hungary are cheaper countries than say Croatia or Slovenia. Yeah, yeah. Then with obviously going through these type of countries, obviously, uh, I would say they're pretty, pretty standard, as in they're very much like us. They're quite high, not high class, but they're very. Um, what's the word? That they're, they're 
they, they live a similar lifestyle to us. The yeah, they're uh, the Western Western country, Westernized, yeah, we Westernized, yeah, cultural yeah, identification. The, yeah, exactly. Um, now, obviously, as you went further east, as you would have gone through sort of parts of eight, well, through Asia, did you notice a big change in in the way that uh, people would like approach you, or 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 in the in the opposite term, maybe not approach you and thought you were some strangers or weirdos on a bike? Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, there's often a, a curiosity, uh, and yes, we are strangers and weirdos on a bike. But as you go east, what you realise is that the shackles of humanity are released and people only ever want to welcome you into their homes i think that is more prevalent in muslim countries than anywhere else they mm. do see you as a gift of god and it is almost a fight between which person in the village is going to let us stay in the house and share dinner and breakfast with us which is really really amazing and you know i remember crossing into romania actually and I was still quite at a British mentality. So someone would say, hey, Tim, do you want to, do you want to, I'm just going to turn this heater off, sorry. Um, it's all right. Do you want, sorry. So, um, so I was just crossed into Romania and they would say that, um, oh, Tim, do you want to come into my house and share a cup of tea? And I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to put you out. Sorry. I, I, no, have a lovely day. See you later. And what they really wanted to do was actually just share in the journey and, it's really important that you let them do that because both people then win. It's not a case of they're just doing it to be nice. They're doing it because they want to. And that mindset really took me a while to get into. And it was only in Romania, I think, was the first time where I was like, no, I need to be better at saying yes to things because, yeah. you know, it makes it better for both people. I'm enriched and they're enriched and um, they want to help and you're letting them into the journey and it's a really lovely thing to see and it only continues it happens around the world but it's more prevalent in in the countries that are not as rich as we are here in england yeah yeah and and it's going back to what you were saying earlier about uh in europe it's quite it's kind of normal uh for people to cycle to touring mm -hmm. cycle and stuff like that um so i suppose when you were going through these countries in europe then People wouldn't bat an eyelid to it. They'd just be like, "Oh, some guys on a on a bike. It's nothing to them." But if you're going through quite desolate places and, and like you say, into sort of like the going towards Asia and sort of Eastern mm -hmm. Europe, it's probably not as common to see, you know, some pasty British guy going through no. on a bike. And and obviously they're a bit like you say, they're a bit more curious to what you what you're up to. Now, obviously you you, you said like obviously there's a majority of people were quite kind but did you ever get like people who were the opposite like did you get people who were quite nasty or just very aggressive or anything like that um surprisingly not so um i never got attacked or robbed um i did meet people who were poor or drunk mm. and would ask for money quite aggressively but nothing that was nothing that ever turned into violence a firm no would would let them know that it's you know mm. and that's fair enough you can ask you know if you're drunk you might ask a bit aggressively okay that's fine um but i had a few things robbed off the bicycle but that's only when i left them with the bike and then i disappeared so in thailand someone stole my power bank in uzbekistan they stole my mp3 player and in right. chile um the bike was parked up outside a supermarket wanted to buy some bread or something I came out and my whole pannier, all the contents had disappeared. Um, but I think because I'd been on the road at that point, two and a half years, everything just looked minging and I found it all yeah. dumped by a bridge. <laughs> I just ran yeah, a corner. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's a relief. It got my stove. So my most important thing is my stove. It's a really lovely MSR whisper light. It's, yeah, but it yeah. quite creates a lot of soot when it burns. So I think it just really it just looked like an old bag of sooty ash and he left it by the yeah, bridge. Yeah. And I was very relieved to get it back. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you you mentioned that you, you you lived on sort of five six pound a day. Now, that to me, obviously, I'm I'm looking at it as a outsider, as someone who's not kind of in the adventure sort of who's who's not kind of adventurous themselves. That doesn't seem like a lot of money. How how did you kind of keep that? Like, how did you get that to spread for that long? Like, as in, do you know what's hard? Because you have to make sacrifices. So when yeah. you know when you have a budget and you've 
have you know it's very easy to live on five pound a day like when you're cycle touring because essentially all you need to do is fuel your body so you need food and then your bicycle is free your tent is your campsite your wild camp is free you know you see everything you experience everything you just need to fuel yourself but the hardest thing is the sacrifice that you need to make so if you roll into a picture perfect european village and there's you know the sun's coming down and you want to have a couple of beers but the beers are maybe eight euros each it's hard it's a hard sacrifice to make um so that's kind of how you have to do it to make the budget last and make the money last for the trip um luckily in certain countries especially when you get out of europe you can roll into a picture perfect village at sunset and the beer is 50p so you can have you know you can enjoy that that process but um it's all about sacrifice and you know we didn't come from we didn't have rich jobs we had basic jobs i was a travel agent at the time Fenola worked for the Thames Water and the Complaints Department, so we didn't have much savings to go on. But it doesn't matter how many savings you've got. If you're away for two, three years, even if you've got quite a big pot, that will dwindle quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting. Like countries you assimilate, like, so you think Australia, you think Australia, oh, that's expensive, right? Ten, $10 a beer, $40 a night in a hostel. But Australia was really cheap for me because, because it was so expensive, I didn't spend anything. So I just mm. camped in my tent and ate pasta and rice and oats and occasionally bought a beer but it was very a cheap country where you think vietnam oh vietnam dirt cheap 10p a beer five pound a hotel but because it was so cheap i spent so much because i couldn't yeah, yeah. appreciate the, so it's only never 10p bring it on <laughs> I got to yeah, yeah. Spend like 15 pound a day that's, yeah that's a, it's a good that's a good way of putting it i think I've never kind of, I kind of not really thought about it like that before, but it's kind of true, like you say, like when you're in these sort of, like like you say Australia, where things are, the 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 similar sort of obviously people will look at it and they look expensive, but it is relevant, like the pricing. Uh, as I say, guys, I've, I've been myself, but like I've known people, I've not been myself, but I know people who've been like in Vietnam and like you say, they're you mm. know the seven you know ten p a pint and stuff like that. <laughs> but then I, you've got say you've got a tenner that's just ridiculous like like that people you will buy more you just want more um mm. which, which which is kind of makes sense in a way uh, and that's just the way i think we are as as westernized sort of europeans uh, especially yeah, you look at it as a bargain being, you think oh this is a right bargain i'll have 10 of them yeah yeah it's just I me think, i don't know i'm not really good at saying no to things <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm terrible at stuff like that um but one thing i was gonna because did you did you acquire any sponsorship while you or any sponsors at all? Like, no. Um, yeah. Do you know what? I sent some emails before I left, but I I don't really like asking for things. As I said before, it's not really in my nature to say, "Can I have something?" So I sent a couple of emails, but I didn't get a reply. So I just thought, no, I do it off my own back. And um, yeah. So we, we saved, and then we used the savings for the trip, and we bought our own gear on a budget off eBay. So that worked really yeah. well, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. That's why you know another reason why I wanted to chat to you because just going back quickly to like people like James, who was kind of the opposite. He obviously acquired quite a lot of money in his sponsorship, and that was his, he was he's always told me that was the hardest part was getting to the start line. But it's very different in the way that you just thought, well, I've saved up my money doing my normal you know normal job. I'll just go and do it off my own back, and. I suppose like that gives you sight i won't say different motivations or goals but it gives you a variation on goals and strategies because you're basically using your own money then um so that must have been a bit different than people like james who used you know we got sponsored by big companies yeah i guess there's you know cycling around the world or, or cycling in general is 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 actually quite affordable in a way that some of james advent- adventures are much more expensive, like climbing Everest or rowing oceans or on the gyrocopter, say. They're very expensive things to do. So you probably do need to find some sponsorship or have a lot of money to start with. Whereas cycle touring, you can, over a, you know, a couple of years, you can save enough money to go away for, for a couple of years. Um, yeah. And also the setup costs are very low. So you don't need any fancy equipment, which makes sponsorship not something that you need to seek out. Um, yeah. So I've never done anything that's been sponsored, but 
I have heard that a getting to the start line with the sponsors is always the most important, the most difficult thing because you're faced with rejection all the time and asking for money is really, really, really hard. Um, also, I've heard that you lose some freedoms potentially if you're sponsored. Now, I don't know the experience of that, but that could possibly be a, a negative to because you have to su support your sponsors throughout the journey, whereas I was just bimbling around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I can understand it. I can understand that. Like you say, when, if you've got sponsors, you have to obviously go down sort of certain PR routes and you've got to make sure you're constantly updating people on certain, you know, certain uh, times of the day and certain times. Um, so I can understand how that's, like the pressure of that can make it slightly more negative. But as I say, in your case, it was in, on your own back and you just kind of did it yourself so you didn't have to please anyone except for myself, obviously, just getting on and doing it. Um, yeah. Which, it, that's, it, it's one thing, It obviously, it was going to bring me on to is, obviously, we talk about a lot of it being quite positive. You didn't really suffer anything quite negative. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about uh, something that I think you probably must have been quite significant, which was your accident. Like, how, if again, for people who don't know, how, how would you explain that, what happened? So I was in El Salvador and at this point I'd cycled for about 40,000 kilometers. So nearing the end of the trip, in fact, you know, going north through Central America into the US. And I'd been in El Salvador for two days and I was a bit nervous at the time. Um, but, you know, I'd cycled in Honduras and I thought that would be scary, but that was lovely. So I took that experience and I was really enjoying the first two days of El Salvador. I'd stopped and had some lunch by the side of the road, a banana sandwich, because I was being real cheap. And I got back on my bicycle and started cycling. And then I was going along, and the next thing I remember is a screech of brakes behind my rear wheel. And I look around and I see a blue pickup truck inches from the back of my bike. And that's the last thing I remember. So I was obviously hit by the car, hit by the truck. And the next thing I remember is being on the pavement, looking up and seeing a policeman and a lady there. And I was very dizzy and confused, but I knew something had happened and just said, hospital. And the policeman went, yes. And he put me straight in the back of the police car, I didn't wait for the ambulance, and drove me straight to the hospital in um, Jocaro, uh, in San Miguel, sorry, in El Salvador, um, where I was busted up real bad. So the my head was wide open so you can see my skull from the front of my head um i've got some really good pictures in the book um and i was in hospital for 10 days it was real bad like my the embassy the british embassy in el salvador I had to call my parents in england to let them know what happened because obviously i was on my own and no one knew where i was and i spent the first day five days in hospital just alone and it was really horrible and really lonely and really depressing. Um, and I was quite scared and it was a horrible thing to happen. Um, but, you know, looking at the positives, I hadn't broken a bone. So whilst my head had been banged open and they were suspected I had concussion, I always say I've either got a thick skull or a small brain because yeah. the old brain was all right, luckily. And I was able to be released from hospital after 10 days, uh, still, you know, not feeling very well in the legs, but nothing had broken so it would heal. And then I spent another 10 days in a hotel in, uh, in San Miguel recovering. Um, and then after, after three weeks from the incident, I was back on the bicycle again. So I was very, very lucky. There was yeah. people in that hospital ward. So I was in a room of six beds. The guy across from me, had his mid little finger cut off in a bar fight with machete. It's just a really interesting story. And yeah. two other people in the same ward had been hit on their bicycles by cars. So, uh, and they were in a lot worse state. And they both of them couldn't walk at the time. So I was very lucky, Touchwood, that I was able to get back on the bike. But it was a horrible thing to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that it, it's obviously going from that obviously being a very kind of negative impact on the trip. How did you find the motivation to go and do the rest? Of, I know, obviously, you say you've you only had about five or six thousand kilometers left. How how did you find the motivation to carry on? Because I know some people would probably think, well, 
I probably don't want to experience that again, and I don't. I wouldn't want to be in that situation again. So, how, how did you? Yeah, sort of it was hard at the beginning. The embassy called. They said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. I, mm. I what am I doing? I'm out on the, my bike in the middle of nowhere on my own, with all my friends and family are back home. Am I selfish? What am I doing here? Am I seeing anything new?" It took a lot of soul searching to work out what I wanted to do in that hospital. Um, and I guess stubbornness is a big factor. And yeah. I just knew that if I did leave El Salvador, I probably would never would have finished the trip. And I guess I'd come so far that the desire to finish was in touching distance. It's still a long way. But it was, you know, percentage-wise, a small percent left of, of the three years. So I thought I wanted to continue. Now, when I first did that first cycle back on the bike with my gear, leaving the little hotel in San Miguel, um, I was really scared. And one thing I didn't realise and didn't factor in was the post-traumatic stress syndrome. that You have the flashbacks to the crash. I went to a T-junction and I probably sat there for five minutes before the place was completely clear of cars and I would pull out. Um, and it took a long time to build that confidence back. Like the first day I did 20Ks and was slow and my bike was in, I had a new bike because my old bike got busted in two so I couldn't cycle that one anymore. So I had to get used to that. And I cycled 20Ks and booked another hotel because I wasn't ready to camp yet and it took me... I just built my myself up slowly. So the following day, I maybe did 30k and booked into another hotel, and then I did 30k again, and then 50k, and then felt better. And I think after seven days of cycling a little bit and then getting a hotel, I decided to camp. And that night, I slept so soundly again in my tent, and I woke up without a problem at seven o'clock in the morning. But I knew I was going to be okay. And whilst I still had the flashbacks and the PTSD a little bit. I kind of had a little bit of my mojo back and was able to continue. I was very yeah. thankful that I had that. That's that's good. It's good. Like you say, I think if you'd have just stopped there and not gone, you know, just come home, basically. I, I, if that was me, I personally would have just regretted it. And, and like you say, mm. it was probably a good thing that you did carry on. Um, yeah. I'm gonna ha I'm gonna hazard a guess that was probably probably one of the lowest points of your trip, if not the lowest point of your trip. Like the, the it was very weird. It wasn't. It was low in the hospital, but the overall experience wasn't low because I was looked after very okay. well by the El Salvadorian police, the British embassy, yeah. and the, the hospital staff. Yeah. So whilst I was quite lonely, it was a very dramatic incident, but it wasn't probably the low, the lowest point of the trip. Yeah. Um, okay. So going. So on the on the flip side, then, could you mm -hmm. pick a point out that was probably your most uh, sort of highest point on the on the trip itself. I, c I can understand that probably the, one of the highest points would have been when you got home and that, you know, so sort of people that you know watched your journey. But I mean, actually, on the trip itself. Um, so there are many many roads in the world that are so beautiful that I could never picture. Um, mm. But that's you know you can Kyrgyzstan and Georgia and Romania and. These countries are just filled with the most beautiful cycling. It just fills my heart with absolute beauty. But I guess the trip wasn't about just natural beauty. It was about humanity. And so one of my favorite stories was actually in China. And I was cycling in China. And I was actually a bit sick of China. China is really big. And I'd spent a whole month cycling across the west side of China. And there's nothing there. I don't know why I bothered doing it. I was just a bit of a stickler for the way. And I wanted to cycle it and it was every day we'd cycle 100 k's along a motorway and sleep underneath the road and then we'd do it again and we did that for 1500 kilometers um at that point i was sick of china <laughs> i just wanted to get to vietnam and have a have a like a barn me and a beer <laughs> like yeah yeah but so we're coming down through south central china and would like maybe two or three days before for vietnam we got to this point and I was quite looking forward to Vietnam. It was coming close to New Year. So I was looking forward to having New Year's in Vietnam. New start, new country, lovely jubbly. Um, two days before that, we'd camped along by the side of the road, just like normal. 
and in the morning I was lifting up uh, Fanola the bike in fact over the, the, the barrier that separates the, the, the countryside from the roads as I put the bike down mm. my ankle slipped and yeah. I was in absolute agony it swelled up real big and I was like this is serious I tried to walk on it it was too much pain I tried to cycle on it it was too much pain we had five kilometres of motorway, or highway, not motorway, but highway to go until the exit. So we kind of, we had to go forward. We couldn't not go forward. And after a real soul searching, Fernando's like, we're going to have to hitch out of this. I was like, okay, yeah. who's going to pick up two Westerners with massive bicycles? Mm. We put our thumbs out. Five minutes later, a car pulls up, a small sedan, like a Citroen Saxo or something, a real small car. And we're like, yeah, yeah. They're like, you're right. And we're like, yeah, my ankle's sprained. I, can you take me to hospital? And so in the car is a lovely young Chinese couple called Renny and Rico and their mum in the back seat. Um, so they're like, yep, yeah, what we'll do is, Tim, get in the car, we'll put you in the back seat. Uh, Rico, the young um, male of the couple, got out and he then rode my bike to the hospital with Fanola, showing her the way. And they drove me right. to the hospital, which was lovely in itself. Uh, such amazing. a moment of pure joy. And beauty, but it didn't end there. So we got to the hospital, and this hospital in this village, I think, had never seen Western tourists before. So we were treated like real royalty. So I'd given the Chinese medicine on my ankle, and it was x rayed, and they were like, Yeah, you need to rest here for three days. And I was like, Okay, no problem. I miss New Year's, but you know, I need to heal. Then on the first night, we had a party in the hospital. Rennie and Rico and their mum came back to bring us gifts. Um, the following morning, the hospital manager came and woke me up and said, Tim, we're taking you for breakfast. So we went for breakfast every morning at a restaurant. They then took us for dinner every night in a restaurant. <laughs> this is like a guided tour. And then they took us for an actual city tour in their little car, showing us the sights and sounds of the city. And then after three days, when we left the hostel, uh, hospital, sorry, I say hostel because it was like that experience. We left the hospital here, they are like, Okay, we're going to have a party for you before you leave. And everyone brought us gifts and we had like food in the hospital. It was such a warm and lovely experience. Selfies were taken. Everyone from the security guard to the nurse and the support team were there taking selfies. Um, and then I said to the hospital manager, I said, okay, I need to pay you for this. You know, I've been here for three days. We've had breakfast and dinner every day. Um, how much do I owe you? And they said, Tim, don't worry about it. Just pay for the x-ray. $15, I think it was. And it was yeah, such yeah. a lovely experience. It, even though like the last two two months or so, I was getting sick of China, it maps now my memory of China. And that's such a warm yeah. and lovely experience to have and to share with them. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's amazing. And it, again, it shows sort of the kindness of strangers. Um, yeah. And from people I spoke to on the, on the podcast, it very much seems like people outside of Europe fall into that category more than they do in in europe because as i say people in europe are very much the same as what we are they're very kind of used to people just cycling. Like if you go see if you see someone cycling around say reading where you live you just oh, they're just cycling that's just what they're doing same for me if i see them cycling around where i live they're just training or they're just going out for a trip but obviously people that cycle around parts of the countries that you've been to in say particular parts of asia it's not normal it's especially to see two westerners cycling it's not normal so it, like you say it's sharing experiences and, and curiosity yeah i think the difference is that the bike is, is fully loaded so there's lots of people cycling everywhere in the world and i think it's not the bicycle itself because the bike's actually quite a, a leveling playing field you find this anywhere yeah. you go people will cycle but it's the fact that you've got all your stuff on the bike um and the fact that you're a, clearly a european person is what makes it in, yeah. more interesting than the bike but yeah I think by having these experiences, by sharing these experiences, I do hope that it now that mindset does change in Western Europe as well. Like, yeah. you know, I'll often try and if I see someone on, on a fully loaded bike, I'll stop. And if I've got some food or something in the car, I'll give them a snack bar and cheer them on. Even if they're just going 100 miles, it's that same mentality and that, that kindness that I remember. And I hope people share that. And the more it happens, the more it gets passed on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so after three years, I was over three years of your travels, 46, was it 46 and a bit thousand kilometers, you've obviously finally got to where you're going. Um, 
Did, was there, like, obviously by that point, I'm assuming that there was a bit of a, a story about you and who you were and what you were doing. Or was that not the case? A story is in like a like a media I, or a press story, or do you mean? Yeah, yeah, like someone like people will say, "Oh, this Tim, he's been cycling from you know from England, this, that, and the other." I mean, there was a little bit of press coverage at the beginning, so you know, I was on BBC Radio Berkshire and, and the local newspapers to promote the trip. Um, but I guess you've been away for so long, people do forget about it, other than family and friends. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't really have an Instagram or, a, you know, I did have a blog, but I wouldn't write on it very often because I was too tired or too knackered from cycling. So, yeah. I, you know, this was 2015. I wasn't really a techie person. I, I kind of better now, but still not very good. And, yeah, I guess the only people who really knew about it were my family and friends back home who were actively following me and maybe a small... Yeah small following but i didn't really promote it in a way that i think people do now and I, sometimes i regret that because um maybe i would have a bigger following now but then i'm like well that wasn't the trip that wasn't what it's was about it was about the cycling and the seeing so you know yeah, yeah it's an absolutely. interesting split of mindset really yeah so when you got to reading in pennsylvania like what was sort of what was your sort of welcoming uh when you got there so my original plan was in the very low key way that I think I embraced life was to cycle into the town centre, take a picture of me next to the sign, go and find a bar and get really drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, well, I've done it now. I'm on my own. I'll get drunk. But luckily, and it was much more beautiful than that in the end. So what had happened is that the night before I was due to cycle I was like camping maybe 25 kilometers from Reading Pennsylvania knew I knew I was going to cross the line the following day no matter what my phone rings bim bim and I got a text from my dad well what time are you going to finish tomorrow I'm like, I don't know midday or something where are you going to finish and I put town center he goes no where exactly I'm like, what do you mean where exactly and he goes I'm just asking I'm like all right, so Google it, like, where's good to finish? And they, Reading have got this big pagoda. Weirdly, they have a Japanese pagoda in the middle of Reading, Pennsylvania. So yeah. I was like, right, I'm going to go to the Japanese pagoda. And he's like, okay. So my mind starts worrying. Why is he asking? Is he here? Oh, I don't want to think about it. Because, you know, you don't want to be let down. You don't want to get your hopes up and then realise you finish your trip on your own. And at the yeah. same time, if my parents are here, you want to keep that emotion real. And, you know, that... I don't want to expect that they're here. So I put that in my mind and then I'm cycling into Reading and I'm a bit late. So that was obviously be stressing my dad out if he was there. But so you cycle up this into the centre of town. I was very happy. I've been taking the pictures all the way. Five k's to go, picture. Ten, two k's to go, picture. Crossing the line, boom. Reading, Pennsylvania, picture. Climbing way up this little, this little mountain hill, about 200 metres up to the pagoda and... I, cook, I turn the thing and there's a photographer there and I just smile and I go, this is amazing. And then my mum and dad are, are stood underneath the pagoda with a, an American flag and a Union Jack and just saying, you did it. And it was a really, really nice and touching moment to share that with them who had obviously been supporting me from day one. And they'd got the local media involved. So they'd, they'd, my dad had asked the Reading Eagle newspaper, the local newspaper to come and take some pictures and videos and they agreed. And... I was headline news on that day, which is great. There's probably not much going on in Reading, Pennsylvania. But like, <laughs> it was a really nice, uh, really nice finish. And was, you know, we did go to the pub and have a few beers, but it was great to share with them and not just be on my own and share it on my own, basically, which is a really nice way to finish. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely, that's, that's amazing. Um, now, yeah. obviously, I, c I can see in the background there, you've got your book. Uh, I just wanted to quickly talk about that. Um, so... You brought that out, was it beginning of this year? So in, was it January it came out officially? February, February 19th was February. the official release. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, for people that don't know what the book's about, uh, it's kind of self-explanatory, Reading to Reading. But it's a, just sort of like if you had like 30 seconds to give yourself a little spiel on, you know, people, why should buy it and stuff like that, what, what would you say? Um. I think it's an honest and heartwarming book. So it is, is very much my voice. I've written it and self-published it. So it's definitely, um, it's very honest. And I 
think it's quite humorous and not too deep, but it is looking at the introspective of bicycle travel and it is from my journey. So it talks about all the highs and all of the lows. So um, not just about the beautiful places, but also like breaking up my partner, being hit by the car features, all the wonderful people I've met, losing my granddad while I was in the desert, um, all encapsulated over three years of travel and life, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Like I said, um, I'll definitely uh, make sure that people are, you know, if they want to buy it, then I'll, I'll put it in the description and stuff. And most, I, I, I'm actually going to buy one myself for, uh, just because I think it's a great story. Um, so I'm definitely going to yeah, do that for everybody. Thank you, Dan. And just to plug the, the book, there's two versions of it. And okay. if you are watching this in England, um, go to my website, timmillikin.com to buy it there because it, A, it supports me slightly better. And the, I printed them myself from a company in England, so they're all English printed, and they have colour pictures. So you get to see um, colour on the inside as opposed to the ones on Amazon, which, because Amazon have print regulations, they're all black and white pictures. So okay. if you can, buy it from the website. Okay, yeah, absolutely. That's something I wasn't aware of, but yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's definitely going to be put in the description, and and hopefully people will buy it because it's a, it's a great story. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk about before before I let you go. Um, so first of all, like I, I talk a little bit about, uh, well, quite a bit about mental health and stuff like that, and we've already obviously alluded to little bits of like your highs and lows. Now, obviously, you were with your then partner for majority of it and then obviously some of it you wasn't now how how did you keep yourself like sort of looking forward and positive and, and obviously when you did have those down down days keeping yourself more sort of in a positive attitude yeah i think it's really important to just check in quite a lot with yourself to make sure that i was still enjoying it because yes you have bad days but you need to make sure that you are still doing it for the right reasons. You may want to just, so my trick was to ensure, was I enjoying this more than being at home? Because I could always go home. If I wasn't, you know, I wasn't tied to anything, um, I could always decide to go home. So I'd often check myself and say, Tim, what do you want to do? And I'd be like, I'm still enjoying it more than if I was at home. And that became, because it's really fun. You know, there are bad times, but realistically it is actually really fun. So the, the motivation to keep you on the road and keep your mental health sound sane are the things that drive me personally. Not everybody. I have lots of curiosity and I love mental and physical exertion and seeing new things around every corner. So as long as those things were being ticked off, I knew that I would be able to carry on the journey. But I was also well aware that if at any point that shifted and I felt like I was doing it for no reason, then I knew in my back pocket that I would just go home. And yeah. by having that decision made, that gave me the strength and ability to continue when times were hard or just make sure that I was still on the right track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, um, obviously you've done quite a bit over the years uh, from what I've you know, read about you and stuff like that. Um, is there anything you've got in the pipeline that you you can say or you, you know something that's not too too sort of intrusive no no so i'm very lucky in a way that um you know i've made my career my passion as we spoke about earlier and you know pre-covid i was guiding a bicycle trip across africa which was a big want of mine and i managed to luckily i think luckily it's fair to get paid for it and it was really amazing but then covid hit and as I'm sure you were down, that whole industry we got cancelled overnight and it's been a year yeah. real, of real struggle. And um, so any future personal trips at the moment? No, because I need to get back working and get back raising the money for anything potential to happen in the future. So there's nothing in the pipeline, but I would love to. There's a few unticked boxes in my life, and that is to cycle the Gibb River Road in Western Australia, which is like a four by four track and it's full of crocodiles and big spiders and remote and it really seems exciting yeah. and i'd love to walk some rivers in venezuela because i just feel that the jungle offers so much excitement and danger and beauty and remoteness that um one day i'd like to do that but that they're way off in the pipeline at the moment you know i'd be lucky to cycle 
around Scotland currently. So, like, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so we're waiting game, you, I guess. So, with your future sort of uh, adventures, would you, because I know you've obviously done a lot of predominantly cycling based uh, adventures. Have you ever considered doing like the more sort of traditional walking or hiking adventures, or is that something you've not really thought about it is yeah like there's lots of things you know I'm, i do really enjoy hiking i've got into hiking quite a lot over the last um you know few years of my life and it is a real fun i've never done really any big hikes never done a fruit hike i'd like to do the appalachian trail i think that's probably on a lot of people's list of amazing hikes um yeah also as i said I, I really am curious about the jungle so any kind of jungle hiking or river walking or um things like that really hold a lot of appeal so one day perhaps if i get my skills up i'm not there yet to go into the jungle i, I you know i think that's the kind of stuff does need a little bit more planning than i'm normally used to yeah but um you know i would like to do those kind of things yeah in terms of water stuff um i'm not really a sailor so or a climber i, I don't like heights that much so i, I like to keep my things on yeah. the ground no, i i i understand with the water side of it i'm not I hate kayaking, canoeing, and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually more into heights, like climbing, etc. So, oh, you are, yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. So, I'm, I'm more into that. Um, last thing I want to ask you, buddy, um, is something I've asked to most of my guests. As, as a adventurer, we, we, you're obviously self, you know, not even self, but again, I, I'd quite happily call you a, a, an adventurer, an explorer. Okay. Now, if you could pick any trip to go on. So you could go anywhere in the world with anyone. Um, where would you go and what would you do? Now, the one thing I will say is it can't be a cycling one because obviously you've done a lot of cycling. So if you could pick something that's not cycling, who would you go with and where would you go? Okay, um, let's go Let's go to the Amazon with Ed Stafford. I think um, he, yeah. has, he might be bored of it because he's done it before, but he would be a very, very good guide. And I would love to see the jungle with his eyes and he could show me how to, you know, protect myself from anacondas and know how to survive in the jungle. And I think he would be, he's an intelligent and really, like, he's got a curious mindset. And I think we'd have really good conversations about life in the jungle. So that would be a really fun trip to do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's quite a, that, and to be honest, he would probably most definitely be second on my list. Um so Ed Stafford, yeah. he's, he's an amazing guy. He, he, again, if people don't know who he is, you should check him out. He's amazing. He's done all his naked and marooned documentaries and stuff like that. He's amazing. Yeah, cool. um, and I, I've said this, I, I, I kind of try and mention it on most of my podcasts because I'm hoping one day that he will get in touch or he'll be able to answer an email or something for myself and try and have a come on the podcast or um, someone who I'd, I want to meet again, which is Leverson Wood. Um, I'm meeting cool, him yeah. obviously in October. He's doing a talking event, but he would be my perfect. Uh, some I don't know what I'd do. It'd be a walking adventure somewhere, um, mm -hmm. maybe in Af Africa, somewhere like that. Because uh, I do a lot of photography, so I'd love to go and do an adventure with him. So hopefully one day he'll 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 hear this conversation that I talk about yeah. on the end of most of my podcasts, and hopefully one day he'll he'll get in touch. But um, um, I just want to say thanks for coming yeah. on, buddy. Yeah, hope, um, I oh, appreciate you coming on. It's been a, it's good chatting to you. Um, as I say, it's good to obviously we've talked off camera, uh, and we've found out you know we we actually know quite a few you know similar people and we've done very similar things, uh, in our sort of, you know besides the trips the cycling trips you've done we've done quite a lot of the same things, so it's great to, it's great to meet you uh, and I'm sure we can keep in oh, touch. Yeah, it's really good. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, 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 I'm sure we'll, when we get the chance post COVID or whenever the lockdowns are, you know, uh, not released, but you know, you know what I mean? Uh, hopefully we can, <laughs> we can, we can uh, meet up and uh, we'll do something together. Um, just for people who want to keep uh, an eye on and keep an idea of what you're doing, uh, what's, what's the best place to get in touch with you or to find out more about you? Um, so, the, my website is timmillikin.com. Um, that's where I do blogs occasionally. I guess the best place is either Instagram, so because I just put pictures up there, which is really easy, and people can follow it there. So that's at Tim C. Millikin. Or if you want to reach out and ask me any questions or anything, just email me at, at timcmillikin at gmail.com, and I'll get back to most people. 
um, who email me if they have anything to say or just want to say nice one, Tim, which is nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, well, thank, like I say, thank you very much, mate. I, I'll put all the links in the description. So if uh, people want to check out what you're doing, I'll put it in the description and they can get in touch that way. Um, so thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Um, so for, for people that are, you know, keeping on, uh, keeping an idea of what I'm doing, obviously I'm doing a lot more stuff in the year uh, to do with uh, my podcast, etc. But um, if I don't see you soon, then I'll catch you on the flip side.